You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Psalms. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to Psalm 132, a picture from the earlier pages of the Old Testament might be helpful. After the people of Israel came out of their slavery in Egypt, they began to camp, according to tribe, around the newly established tabernacle of God. On the east side of the tabernacle dwelled Judah and Issachar and Zebulun. On the south side dwelled Reuben and Simeon and Gad. And on the west side were Ephraim and Manasseh and Benjamin. And on the north side were Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. And there in the middle of these 12 tribes, the tribe of Levi existed, caring for and tending to, in their midst, the tabernacle of God. And this physical arrangement spoke to uh, not only a spiritual ideal, but the very heart of God, that he would be at the center of the lives of his people. And that picture, if you will, illustrates how Israel was great when God was at the center of their lives. Now, Also in the Old Testament, there's a figure named David, and he is going to be spoken of often in this particular psalm. And David understood very clearly that Israel was great when God was at the center. He is referred to as the sweet psalmist of Israel. And he, in his prayer book and in his life, continually fought for God at the center of Israelite life. And if we, as disciples or pilgrims, are going to bring honor and glory to God, we must also, like David and like ancient Israel, fight for God to exist at the center of our everyday experience and lives. A theme for this psalm could be stated this way. Today's spiritual temperature can be regulated by past, by the past and the future. And ancient Israel did this by considering David, past and present and future. So let us go back to the Davidic heart. And in this song, we're going to see some simple movements. We're going to see them look back and realize that there was a time when God was at the center of things. They're also going to look around at their current experience to ask the question, is God currently at the center of things? And then finally, they're going to look forward and confess that ultimately, God will be at the center of things. So first, we have our backward glance, our look back from the singer's. They sing in verse 1 and say, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord. 
a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So the singers immediately refer to the hardships of David. Now, David had many difficulties in life, but the hardships that this psalm speaks about aren't the ones we might normally think of. This song really isn't referring to the family issues that plagued David's life, whether it was with his father-in-law Saul or even his own father Jesse or his wife Michael or his sons like Absalom. Uh, This likely isn't a reference to the military issues that David dealt with, Goliath and the Philistines and the Edomites. This also likely isn't referring to the hardships of his leadership, having to deal with men like Joab and Absalom. But what the song seems to be concerned with are not those more typical hardships, but the hardship of maintaining the worship of the Lord in Israel. You see, the worship of God was always under attack in Israel. And for all of the things that David did wrong in his lifetime, and there are some glaring sins, the reality is that he always stayed true to the living God, which made him a very rare king in Israel. He never turned to idolatry. He never turned to sorcerers or mediums. Uh, He never rejected the prophets or rejected the word of God. He always stayed true to the living God. His heart, at the very core of it, was loyal to the God of Israel. And when David became king, one of the things that he accurately diagnosed was a problem that had persisted during the time of his predecessor, King Saul. It says in 1 Chronicles 13, verse 3, that David said, Let us now bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not see it in the days or seek it in the days of Saul. He looked out at Israel and he realized there's a massive problem that exists amongst us. We have not put God at the center of our lives. He has been on the fringe He has existed, he's been around, but he has not been the all-consuming fire that he deserves to be. We have not been seeking the ark. And David wanted God at the center of Israel once again. Now, this was not an attitude that David had merely at the beginning of his reign. This was not some mere political move. No, we know that he was writing Psalms of worship and prayer to God before he was ever in the public eye. We know that at the beginning of his kingly ministry and work, he wanted to do this, bring the ark into Jerusalem. But we also know that at the finish line of his life, he wanted to leave an enduring legacy in preparing to build the temple for God. In fact, he had wanted to actually build the temple for God, but had so much blood on his hands that God refused him, and as we'll see in a moment, made other promises in return to David. But still, even though he couldn't build the house for God, he prepared the 
construction directions for Solomon, made the plans and accumulated the materials so that once he died, Solomon could step in and take over the project and actually be responsible for building the temple. What this shows us is that through and through, David's heart and desire was perpetually to put God in his proper place. I want God to be at the center, not only of my life, but I want God to be at the center of the life of the nation of Israel. And I think part of the reason why David wanted this so desperately for all of Israel is because he had drank in the blessings of having God at the center of his own life personally. Now, you might notice there that in the first few verses, David, as he's declaring that he wants to find a place for the Lord, uh, David is rather extreme in his confession. You know, he's saying things like, I am going to swear or make a vow that I won't enter my house and I will not sleep. Uh, This is poetic, over-the-top figure of speech kind of language. But we know that David really was passionate and rather extreme in his pursuit of God at the center of things. We know from 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and elsewhere that when they finally did bring the ark into Jerusalem to put into the tabernacle, David was there As citizen number one, worshiper number one, dancing and celebrating God's presence there amongst his people. Now, there is much of David that we just cannot have. You know, we don't have Goliath and that opportunity in the physical flesh. We aren't called to be the kings of, of God's people like, like David was. We will not be authors of Scripture. But there is much of David that we can have. We can have his heart. He was a man after the heart of God who would do all his will. We might not have the exploits and the callings of David, but we can have the passion and the longings of David. Those passions and those callings don't have anything to do with talents or abilities, but with love. And David loved the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, as Deuteronomy 6.5 taught and as Christ repeated in the New Testament. And so we might want to ask ourselves in this first portion, and just looking back and comparing ourselves to David, the Davidic heart, We might want to ask the question, do I sense myself trending towards or away from that heart? What or whom have I treasured? What or whom have I treasured? And when I read the Psalms, do I sense a similar longing for God? And have I ruined my appetite for him with other things? Jeremiah said that my people, Jeremiah 2 verse 13, the voice of God, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So often, our hearts are turned to the very things that cannot satisfy. And so step one of cultivating that Davidic heart within is to look back and simply say, there is a man, there is a believer who so deeply loves God. Where am I? in comparison to him. 
Now, secondly, we might also look around and ask the question, is God at the center of my life today? It says in verse 6, the singers cry, Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Now here, the pilgrims allude to the discovering of the lost ark. You might remember that God had commanded Moses after the Exodus to construct this small box that was overlaid with gold and had a lid called the mercy seat, and that inside of it would be placed the Ten Commandments. And that box was referred to as the Ark of the Covenant, and it was placed inside the Holy of Holies, which was the furthest and innermost room of the tabernacle. Now, that Ark would be covered up and travel before the people of Israel when they went into war and when they went into the promised land. By the time Saul had become king, the ark, it seems, had become sort of a lucky charm or a superstition for the people of Israel. They would be steeped in sin, wandering away from God, but ready to go out to war, and so they would bust out the ark and yell and shout and scream as if the mere presence of this box would give them the victory when their hearts and their lives were so far from the God who was to be represented by that box, represented by that ark. And so, because they had relegated the ark to a mere superstition, God allowed the ark to become captured. Now, eventually, the Philistines grew frustrated in possessing the ark. It caused nothing but problems for them, and so they sent back the ark into Israel. And eventually, it found its way into Jair, which is the region of Kiriath-Jerim. And for 20 years, it was there. And what the psalmists are singing is, look, there was a time when we were in Ephrathah, near Bethlehem, the area of Bethlehem, and we heard, we found out that the ark was gone from us for 20 years and that the ark was in Jair. And so what we did is we said, let's go get the ark. Let's bring back the thing that is lacking. Let's bring back the thing that is missing. Again, as David said in 1 Chronicles 13, 3, then let us bring again the ark of our God to us. Now, the reality is that the scriptures tell us exactly where the ark existed for those 20 years. I think that it's possible that they knew exactly where that ark dwelt, but had neglected to bring it home, had neglected to search for it. I think so often we know exactly what's missing. We act as if the lack of joy or the lack of peace or the lack of satisfaction in our lives is some deep mystery. But if we're really honest with ourselves, if we would really just consider where we're at, so often there's some major, unconfessed, secret bitterness or sin or rebellion that exists. 
And we know. We know that it's there. We know that it exists. We know that it's plaguing us. We know that it is keeping us from having God at the center of our lives. And we might run around saying, why do I feel so depressed? We might run around saying, why don't I feel spiritual fervor? Why do I feel this apathy? When really, if we're honest, in the heart of our hearts, we so often know it's because we've pushed God out of the center of our lives. We've invited something else in to be there at the center. And we just haven't wanted him to regain the ground that we gave up to sin. So often, what we need is to look around and ask the question, is God at the center? And if he's not, what we need is honesty and then the grace of his repentance and a bit of leadership to bust through and to get out of that rut. It lasted Israel for 20 years. But David and those around him said, enough is enough. It is time to bring the ark back to its rightful place. And so then they pray, these pilgrims, Arise, O Lord, verse 8, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Now, when David and others with him brought the ark back to Jerusalem, the first attempt actually ended in disaster. Uzzah, the priest, stabilized the ark as it stumbled because they were carrying the ark on a cart, which was the forbidden mode of transport by God. He actually asked the priest to carry the ark and follow a specific guideline of ceremony and moving the ark of God, but they neglected that. They hadn't looked into the word of God, and so when Uzzah stretched out his hand, he died. God struck him. David actually was upset about this for a time until later when he realized we've been wrong, and he then brought the ark in in the way that God had prescribed, the biblical way. And so here, when the people sing, Let your priests be clothed in righteousness and your saints shout for joy. They're recalling that day when they finally got it right. And there was righteousness that was flowing. This all harkens back to the original request, you know, of the people. Remember David. Remember his sufferings there in verse 1, his hardships. And so what's happening here in this song at this point is it appears that the pilgrims, who maybe even have been in exile for years, they are recalling the day when there was spiritual revival amongst the people of Israel through David's leadership, and they're asking for the same thing to take place today. They were asking it for the sake of God's servant, David. Now, we might not pray for the sake of your servant David, but we might pray for the sake of your servant, the son of David, or for the sake of Christ. In other words, what they were saying is they were looking around and saying, hey, we belong to David. We belong to David, the one who wrote these Psalms. We belong to David, this one who is a hardcore worshiper of God. 
Yet there is a gap between his fervor and his love for the Lord and our common experience today. And we too might be able to look around and see the gap between our true identity in Christ Jesus and our experience. You know, the Bible teaches in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Galatians 6.15, Ephesians 2 verse 10, and more, that we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. The Bible teaches in John that we are born again by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians tells us that we are alive together with Christ that we are created in Christ, that in Christ we have been brought near, that we are partakers of the promise in Christ, and that we are blessed by God in Christ. And as we think about who we truly are, we might realize that that's who we truly are. We're in Christ, new creatures, born again of the Spirit, but so often our everyday experience feels like there's a major gap between that reality and what we are living in every single day. Paul said it this way in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. He said, Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see, my new life has come. I'm already there. I already have that new life. It's just that it's clouded by this world. It's hidden with Christ in God. It's hidden in the heavenly places. So I must learn how to more and more set my mind on things that are above. You see, the more that I set my mind on things that are on the earth, the more difficult it will be for me to experience that newness of identity that is mine in Christ Jesus. Now, so often, this doesn't even really look like a change in lifestyle. You might still have the very same job, the very same career that you have today. It's just that the inner motivation of your heart, the whole reason for doing that career and doing well in that career becomes a heavenly motivation to bring honor and glory to God rather than just grinding away, making a buck to provide for your own needs. You begin to think about things beyond. Now in the song, they go on to say, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body, here's the promise of God, I will set on your throne if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them. Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Now, this is really part of the next portion of the song, but I still think it's helpful to consider for this looking in and saying, is God at the center of my life portion of the song? Because here, they're recalling the promise that God had made to David. Now, before they rejoice and exult over the eternal promise that God had made to David, the, of the forever kingdom that Jesus would establish in the line of David, they also confess That not only will there be this one son who will forever sit on the throne, but God, you made a promise that if the 
earthly sons of David would keep your covenant and your testimonies that were taught to them, then they also would be able to sit on the throne. What we have here is both an unconditional promise and a conditional promise from the Lord. The unconditional promise is of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and his never-ending rule and reign. That promise would be fulfilled no matter what. But the conditional promise concerns the more immediate descendants of David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and on and on. And if they were faithful and kept the word of God, God's blessings would be unleashed upon their lives in a fresh and beautiful way. Sometimes I think it's good for us to look around and ask if God is at the center by simply observing, are we living in obedience to him and his word? Now, finally, in verse 13, we see our singers look ahead to a time when God most definitely will be at the center. They sing, verse 13, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for, all, for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Now what's spoken of here is the forever reign of Christ. And the forever reign of Christ uh, in and from Jerusalem. We, of course, learn that in Revelation 20, verse 6, that Christ will reign from Jerusalem. And it says that they, as his people, they will reign with him for a thousand years. But then, after that thousand-year reign of Christ, It tells us in Revelation 21, verse 10, that a holy city called Jerusalem will come down out of heaven from God. In other words, there is an eternal Jerusalem that is part of heaven from where Christ will perpetually and forever reign. So as these pilgrims considered their spiritual health and vitality, one thing they were thinking about was that someday God will be at the center forever. Now, in this promise from God, you might have noticed that there are prophecies of Jesus. He is called the horn to sprout for David in verse 17. Now, this word for horn is connected to the word branch, which throughout the prophets is another picture of the coming of Christ. Like Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 23, verse 5, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. That's a prophecy about Jesus. Also, beyond the horn, you see a lamp verse 17, a crown in verse 18, and obviously the crown will shine, and we would assume so would the lamp. 
This speaks of the enduring light and prosperity and success of the kingdom of Christ. It will add new meaning to the phrase from Jesus, I am the light of the world. Now, this day is coming. Like Habakkuk heard from the Lord, the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So, the Lord is coming. His his kingdom will be established forever. What I wanted you to see here in verse 13 to 18, partly, is how often God says, I will, or I shall, or I have. You see, as much as they looked back upon David and saw his devotion, the truth of the matter is that God, in the covenants he makes, is always more devoted than the human beings that are part of that covenant. For however zealous and however ever obedient and however longing for God you might be, the reality is he is more devoted to this plan than you and I will ever be. It will always be his grace. We will never outperform the living God. And God announces here in verse 13 to 18 that they will dwell and be satisfied with salvation. They will shine with him forever. I think that as we think of going back to the Davidic heart, we should also look ahead to how the future Jerusalem will be, and we should allow that to impact our lives today. In the future, we will fully realize that we are a kingdom of priests unto God, and we should live that way today as much as possible. In the future, we will be a beautiful community of believers, leaning on and loving one another. And so we should live that way today. In the future, we will be overwhelmed with, and we will also perfectly dispense the love of God. And so we should attempt to love today. And in the future, we will be worshipers of God. And so we should worship him today. The thing is, is that when that day comes, we will experience all these things. Whereas now, we may experience all these things. We're allowed to experience all these things. We can experience all these things, but none of them will be forced upon us. So the pilgrims look. God was at the center. And they look forward. God will be at the center. And so the question that we would ask from Psalm 132 is, is God currently at the center of my life? God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.